1941, this is going back eight, almost 80 years, 80 years. Uh, my grandfather, whose name was Shalom Gordon, was a 19-year-old student in the Chabad Yeshiva in Brooklyn. And one Thursday night in May, he was called by the previous Rebbe's secretary to come to see the Rebbe would like to speak to him. So he went to speak to the Rebbe and the Rebbe told him that he should go to his secretary. He'll be given a quarter for a train to get to Newark, Newark, New Jersey. And he will, he will give him an address of a Chabad follower in Newark, New Jersey, uh, where he can stay. And he should immediately the next morning, Friday morning, take a train to Newark, um, go to this address. And then he is to start a Jewish school in Newark. And he's supposed to, it was Thursday night, he should have the school open by Monday morning. He was 19 years old at the time. Uh, he followed the instructions he was given. He took the train to New Jersey, as he was told, found the address, um, ended up spending Shabbat in this family's home and uh, stayed there for a lot longer and uh, spent Shabbat going from synagogue to synagogue in Newark. Newark was then a very, very Jewish city. Um, and uh, speaking and speaking in each shul in every synagogue and asking people to uh, send their children to the school that he was going to open. It was an after school program um, when school ended at two or three o'clock. It was gonna be a two, three hour program every day. He didn't have where to build his school. Um, in one of the synagogues that he visited over Shabbat, the rabbi offered that he can use a room in the synagogue temporarily and so he used that room temporarily, lasted for a week. Um, he, managed, I should, he managed to get a handful of students for his first Monday afternoon uh, when he opened the school. He was the teacher, it was a one-man show. Um, he managed to, in this room in the synagogue, he had that room for a week. Later, he found a room outside of a synagogue. Today, we do things outdoors, but he was outdoors for a little while till finally they found themselves a more permanent place. They hired teachers. With time, the school grew. Um, it continued to grow. Um, it later became a full-fledged school in Yeshiva. Uh, then later in the late 60s, um, as Newark, the, the city, um, became a hard place to live, um, the Yeshiva moved eventually to, Maple, to um, Morristown, New Jersey, and that Yeshiva still stands today. So this story of my grandfather was really one of many, many, many similar stories that I've heard personally from other people, from some of his friends who were in yeshiva, his yeshiva at the same time, also young students in their late teens uh, or maybe early, uh, early 20s who had been sent by the Rebbe with very, very little, um, with no money except the train fare, um, very little information of what they were supposed to do to build schools. Um, really across the United States. Um, in the 1940s, the um, previous Rebbe had these students build schools um, really all over the U.S. in places from Pittsburgh to Worcester, Massachusetts, to Buffalo, Rochester, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, New Haven, 
Bridgeport, Chicago, Springfield, Massachusetts, Providence. These, by the way, were the big Jewish population centers back then, before everyone moved to California and to Florida. Um, that's where everybody lived in the Northeast most, and the Midwest. But the, they had built dozens of Jewish schools um, during these few years. So back in the 1940s, this is going back 80 years, while the Holocaust was decimating the Jewish community in Europe, which was the largest Jewish community at the time, almost two-thirds of world Jewry lived in Europe. The, Soviet, the Soviets and the Soviet Union itself, home to millions of Jews, had totally destroyed Jewish life, Jewish schooling um, in the Soviet Union. The next largest Jewish community in the world by far was in the United States. Jews came uh, from Eastern Europe. More than two million Jews moved from Eastern Europe to the United States between 1891 and 1914. The span of about 23 years, more than two million Jews moved to the United States. Some 25 years later, by 1940, the natural growth, um, it was mostly young Jews um, in their late teens or early 20s that had moved here. Um, natural growth made that community now number by 1940 some four to five million Jews. However, what was now the second generation of Jews, the adult children who had been born in the United States, had by and large rejected the Jewish practice and Jewish traditions of their parents. Very, very few Jews kept Shabbat. My grandmother growing up in Brooklyn back in the 1920s says she could count on her hands all the families that were Shabbat observant that she knew. There weren't a lot. Um, many other Jewish traditions had been thrown away, kosher, other Jewish traditions, going to synagogue, and most importantly, Jewish education. There were only a handful, about four or five Jewish schools in the entire country in the 1940s, serving a population of some four or five million Jews. Millions of Jews were assimilating very, very quickly, dropping Jewish values, dropping the teachings and traditions of their parents. And it appeared as if Judaism in the United States was, the, despite being the largest Jewish community in the world, was heading quickly towards extinction. With the community in Europe being decimated by the Holocaust, it didn't look like there was any future for the Jewish community in the United States, or for that matter, the many other Western countries that Jews had fled to, like Canada, or countries in South America or Australia that Jews had fled to um, during the early 20th century. Many people were predicting an end to Judaism within a few generations. Some rabbis and community leaders tried to accommodate the new generation by dialing back on Jewish rules, um, telling Jews they no longer needed to keep Shabbos or kosher, trying to make Judaism more um, secular more American, but they still were losing Jews in very, very large numbers. It did not look at that point like Judaism with Jewish life ending in Europe and there being no future 
in most new Jewish communities around the world, particularly in the United States. It did not like, look like Judaism had a future. In fact, many predicted that within a generation or two, Judaism as we know it will end. In 1940, the Germans allowed, right after they invaded Poland, the Germans allowed the previous Rebbe to flee war-torn Poland. He was living then in a suburb of Warsaw. Um, thanks to U.S. influence, the United States had not yet entered the war, and um, American diplomatic pressure um, convinced the Germans to allow the Rebbe to leave Poland and to move to the United States. In March 1940, the previous Rebbe was 59 years old. He came, arrived in the United States. At the time, he was very sick because earlier he had lived in the Soviet Union where he had led the Jewish underground. He had been imprisoned and tortured by the Soviets. At the time he arrived in the United States in 1940, he was unable to walk. He was in a wheelchair. He also was suffering at an advanced stage of multiple sclerosis. And uh, he was not a healthy person. Getting off the boat that brought him to the United States in 1940, the Rebbe spoke to the large community that had come to greet him, former followers or children of followers whose parents had been um, his followers in Europe, had come to greet him. And he spoke to the crowd telling them that he did not come to the United States to relax. He didn't come here to retire. He rather came to build the United States into a center of Judaism that will rival the community that was being destroyed in Europe. When he came to the U.S., he didn't have, he at first went to a hotel, to, stayed in a hotel, and he called some of his close followers that were living in the United States. And he told them that he would like them to start a yeshiva immediately. A yeshiva training young boys to become leaders of the next generation. The next morning, he called in those same followers and he asked them what happened to his yeshiva. Did they open it yet? They hadn't. They thought he would maybe forget about it. Um, they had it. And so he insisted that they open right then and there that morning, they open a yeshiva. They did that, they found the synagogue um, where one of his followers was a rabbi, and they opened a yeshiva that morning. My grandfather, who I spoke about earlier, was one of those first students in the yeshiva that opened that morning. And so <laughs> within a year, as that yeshiva grew, he sent out the first crop of top students, rabbinic students that he had in his yeshiva. He sent them away from the yeshiva to around the country to open schools of their own across the country. Within a few years, there were dozens of Jewish schools across the United States uh, teaching thousands of Jewish students Torah alongside their regular studies. And that growth wasn't just limited to the United States. In 1946, right after the Holocaust, as the survivors in Europe tried to piece their lives together, mostly finding themselves in DP, displaced person camps, across Germany, 
1946, hundreds of Chabad families managed to escape the Soviet Union in what was one of the most daring mass escapes in history. Story of its own. We really maybe should address it in its own class. Many of those followers wanted to, many of those Chabad families now found themselves, they made their ways to DP camps, in their way to DP camps in Germany, and they wrote letters to the Rebbe asking for visas to come to the United States where Chabad was being rebuilt. The Rebbe did not allow them to come to the United States. Instead, he sent them around the world. Some telling, he told some of them to settle in France, in Belgium, in England, sent some to South Africa, to Australia, to Israel, to countries with Jewish communities around the world with the goal of building Jewish communities in those countries. Before his death in 1950, the previous Rebbe told his son-in-law and successor that the almost half a million Jews who lived at the time in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, were they're struggling themselves with a wave of assimilation that had come over modernizing countries in North Africa. They were then mostly under French control. And there was a need to revive those communities. Many of those communities were teaching their children in the old style haters, in the old style um, schools that would be in teachers' homes that were not organized, not structured, not modern. And many students were going to secular schools that secular Jewish organizations were building in these countries. And so the Rebbe sent dozens of his followers who had escaped the Soviet Union to Morocco, to Tunisia, where they spread out, fanned out across the many Jewish communities there, building dozens of schools, of organized, structured schools, hiring local Jewish scholars as teachers, and creating a framework for the Jewish community to be, for the Jewish community in Morocco, in Tunisia, for Jewish children to study Torah, keeping those communities alive. In 1941, the Rebbe's son-in-law, um, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who was the Rebbe, known today as the Rebbe, had been living in Paris. And after Paris, after France was invaded by Germany, he managed to escape through Spain to the United States. He arrived in the United States in June in 1941. When he arrived, the Rebbe founded an organization called Merkez Le'inyane Chinuch, tasked with moving the Chabad revolution beyond just building schools, bringing Judaism alive in other ways, beyond education. He started Shabbat afternoon programs for children. He started programs in public schools. He discovered that there was a law that until then was really just used by the Catholic Church that allowed, in most states allowed, one hour of religious instruction in public school, where you could take religious teachers, could come into public school one hour a week and teach the children religious instructions. Catholics were doing it, but nobody else was. The Rebbe took advantage of that, 
sent students um, to public schools to teach children. He began a Jewish kids magazine. He started sending yeshiva students during their summer breaks, instead of going to camps or taking vacation, to send them to visit Jewish communities across the country to inspire Jews everywhere. In 1950, when the previous Rebbe passed in 1950, the Rebbe succeeded his father-in-law as a Rebbe. And he immediately began sending young couples as shluchim, or messengers, emissaries, to major cities across the United States. He sent shluchim to every major Jewish community, um, sent these people to inspire their Jewish community, to start Jewish programming, to, to awaken people and bring them um, and reconnect them to Torah, to the Jewish commandments, to reconnect them to Judaism. Soon, by the late 1950s, there were dozens of these shluchim in cities across the U.S., and not only in the United States. He sent shluchim to countries around the world to bring Judaism in, or to um, reawaken Judaism and inspire Jews in their countries. In 1965, the Rebbe sent Rabbi Shlomo Kunin to Los Angeles. He arrived here in 1965. And after running a number of different programs on the West Side, where most of the Jewish community was at the time, and I guess you can say still is today, Rabbi Kunin decided to open a Jewish center in Westwood, right next to UCLA to serve the Jewish students that were there, and he called it a Chabad house. And thus began a movement of Chabad on university campuses. And following that, other young couples went to campuses, to university campuses across the United States and across the world. Today, Chabad is found on over 250 campuses across the United States and many more across the world. This also began, the Rebbe liked the name Chabad House, and it began a franchise where Shluchim around the world opened centers with the name Chabad or Chabad House. And today there are over 4,000 Chabad centers around the world with thousands of couples dedicated to building Jewish communities around the world. And these couples, that they continue to grow and increase, and every day new centers continue to open. In fact, in the past year, even with um, COVID shutting us down, keeping us locked down, um, more than 100 new Chabad centers have opened over just in this year, just in 2020 alone, even with COVID. Um, in fact, my brother, a younger brother of mine, uh, just opened a Chabad center a few months ago, despite COVID, in Mammoth, just north of us, uh, a couple hours north of us in Mammoth Lakes, for all the Jews that both live there and for the many visitors that visit there over the year. And uh, though we, though, um, we're limited with COVID, 
still many new centers have opened and Chabad continues to grow and continues to open these centers and couples continue to move to various Jewish communities to inspire them. As a result, um, the thousands of Chabad couples or shluchim or families around the world um, that, have, that are in various communities in almost every place where there is a com Jewish community with a couple hundred Jews living there in almost every place there is, or just about every place, there is a Chabad center. In fact, the, um, there, uh, there was a joke that many would say that wherever you go around the world, there is um, Chabad and Coca-Cola. Uh, wherever you go, you can find Chabad. Uh, in fact, uh, I just heard last night, a fellow said that he went to a doctor and um, he, when the doctor heard that he was a Chabad rabbi, he said, I love Chabad. He said, well, that's wonderful. Are you Jewish? He says, no, I'm not Jewish. So why do you love Chabad? He says, well, you know, I like, I travel a lot and wherever I go, I like to stay in Airbnb. But I never know what's a good neighborhood. You never know when you go to a new city, where's a good neighborhood. You don't want to end up in a bad neighborhood. So I go to, I check where there's a Chabad. And a Chabad are usually in good neighborhoods. So, um, that, so that's how I know where to stay. Chabads are found everywhere um, in the world. Um, in fact, Chabad was found in places where... Um, even there, were, there was no Israeli embassy. Um, you know, they ju they're just working now on opening an Israeli embassy in the United Arab Emirates. Chabad has been already in the United Arab Emirates for a number of years. There's been a Chabad center there, um, as well as in Morocco, in Tunisia, and many other places. So um, Chabad in, impacts million, each center, every place around the world, and there are over 4,000 of them, um, have hundreds of Jews that are actively involved where Chabad is bringing Judaism to hundreds of Jews in each center. And so therefore we are impacting millions of Jews around the world. And what do you think? There's only about 15 million Jews in the world. So a very, very large percentage, if not 50% of world Jewry are in one way or another involved in Chabad. In 1967, during the harrowing days before the beginning of the Six-Day War, the Rebbe called on his followers to help all Jewish men put on tefillin. And so the Chabad followers spread through the streets of Manhattan, through army bases in Israel, and really everywhere where they could find Jewish men, to help them put on tefillin. That was the first of a number of mitzvah campaigns that the Rebbe began um, to, in these mass campaigns, to get Jews to do mitzvahs. Over the years, the Rebbe started a number of different campaigns from tefillin. He then started a campaign to get Jewish women to light Shabbat candles every Friday another campaign to get every Jew to put a mezuzah on their home, those who have mezuzahs to have those mezuzahs, get those mezuzahs checked to make sure they're kosher. Unfortunately, I found that a very large number of mezuzahs that people have on their homes are not kosher. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of fraud 
um, being sold as mezuzahs or over time, they are not kosher. Um, the Rebbe encouraged a campaign to get Jews to keep kosher in their homes um, and outside the home, a campaign of Jewish education, building Jewish schools, getting Jewish children into Jewish schools, both day schools, um, Sunday schools, and every type of Jewish education. We never started a campaign of mikvahs to get Jewish women, uh, married women, to go to mikvah and to build mikvahs in every single Jew, every place where Jews live, to build a mikvah. The Rebbe started a campaign of Torah study, to teach Torah, to start Jewish classes um, everywhere uh, in every community. The Rebbe started a campaign of tzedakah, to get everybody to have a charity box, a tzedakah box in their home, um, in their office, and to regularly give tzedakah. The Rebbe started a campaign to buy Jewish books that people should um, not just study, but have a Jewish library in their home. And the Rebbe also had a campaign of Avat Yisrael to love one's fellow, that we should, um, that we should go out of our way to help others and show our love for others. The Rebbe also began holiday campaigns for Jewish holidays. The Rebbe encouraged us to distribute matzah to everyone for Passover and ensure that every single Jew comes to a Seder, build big public Seders, communal Seders, um, for the community that people have a Seder to go to. On Shavuot, the Rebbe encouraged that we get, make sure that every Jew hears the Ten Commandments being read from the Torah on Shavuot. On Rosh Hashanah, that we go and make sure that everyone hears the shofar being blown. On Sukkot, that everyone sits in a sukkah and shakes the lulav and etrog. On Hanukkah, that everyone lights the Hanukkah menorah. And on Purim, that everybody hears the Megillah being read and fulfills the other mitzvahs of Purim. And these campaigns brought easy mitzvahs to millions of Jews who began following them. Central to the Rebbe's role in reviving Judaism was the belief that for us to overcome assimilation, we need to stand tall and proud as Jews. Back in 1940, many Jews were uncomfortable about being Jewish. Then, anti-Semitism was rampant in this country. Most universities had quotas of how many Jews they would actually take. It was very hard for Jews to get into universities, especially the more prestigious ones. Um, many prestigious firms, law firms, accounting firms, many big prestigious firms or banks would not hire Jews. There were many cities, including here in California, where, it was where there were um, conditions on the deed that one could not sell land or homes to Jews. And so we, there was still, this country was fairly anti-Semitic. And many Jews were keen on assimilating. Even those who did follow Jewish practice to some extent, did so quietly, never wanted to publicly share that they were Jewish. They would take off their yarmulke. They would be embarrassed. They would try to keep it very quiet change their names to make it sound more non-Jewish, try to not let anyone know that they were Jewish. 
The Rebbe believed that the only way to change, to counter assimilation here in the United States is by making Judaism something that people are proud of. That Jews should not be embarrassed to be Judaism, but take pride in being Jewish. That Jews should be open and public about being Jewish. And so the Rebbe encouraged his followers to dress in ways that were very visibly Jewish. To walk down the street in a way that everyone knows that we're Jewish. People take a look at us. They see you with a yarmulke on your head. They see you have a beard. They know straight away that you're Jewish. They see us, they see tzitzis. They see straight away that we're Jewish. We're very visibly Jewish. Everybody in town sees us because they know who we are. Um, Rabbi Yossi says when he first came here, um, he would meet people that he didn't know and they would tell him they knew who he was because everybody saw him. He, was, he looked different. The Rebbe also encouraged his followers to make public events. Make events in public. Take advantage of public forums to be able to talk about being Jewish. Go in newspapers, put ads, public ads in public places. Go on the radio, go on television to speak about Judaism. Be public and proud of being Jewish. Make Judaism something that is visible in the public square. Perhaps most noticeable was the way the Rebbe changed the Hanukkah holiday. Hanukkah was always a holiday where Jews lit the menorah in their homes, um, played dreidel, had some Hanukkah family, Hanukkah parties, but that was the extent of Hanukkah. But Hanukkah was also, the Rebbe noticed, was a very embarrassing time for many Jews here in this country. Because it was a time when Jews, when our non-Jewish neighbors would decorate their homes with, um, for their own holiday, would celebrate, the stores were decorated, the public square was decorated, everything was decorated. There were big public tree lightings and celebrations, and many Jews felt very uncomfortable. Schools, the children learned about the, about the Christian holidays coming up. Many Jews felt very, very uncomfortable. In fact, some of you may remember this, back in the 1940s, 1950s, Many, many Jewish homes had Hanukkah bushes trying to imitate their non-Jewish neighbors. They didn't want to be left out. The Rebbe insisted we change that. If Christians will have a public holiday that's in the public square, then we're going to compete with that. We'll not compete, but we will complement that. We will add to it by adding Hanukkah in the public square. The Rebbe encouraged that we put up big menorahs. The first menorah was in Union Square in San Francisco in the early 1970s. Um, and then by 1979, they put up a large menorah in front of the White House, um, encouraged by President Carter at the time. President Carter even came out to light that big menorah. And by the 1980s, there were Hanukkah menorahs in front of almost every um, capital in, the, um, in every state in the country, in front of many town, um, city um, town halls, in front, of many, um, in front of in many other public squares, 
And there were large Hanukkah celebrations. And suddenly Hanukkah became a national holiday. Everyone knew that Jews celebrate Hanukkah. And Jews now were proud to celebrate Hanukkah and public about celebrating Hanukkah. Public officials would recognize Hanukkah. And today, thanks to the Rebbe pushing uh, Judaism into the public square, um, insisting that public officials, that his followers, reach out to public officials to recognize Jewish holidays, to recognize Judaism, to come to Jewish events, um, and the like. Now Judaism has become a major religion in the United States. It's often considered one of the great religions of the United States, along with Protestantism and Catholicism, even though there's only a couple million of us in this vast country. We're less than 2% of the population. But we've made our mark. And today, thankfully, by and large, Jews are no longer embarrassed or uncomfortable being Jewish. Jews in the United States are proud that they're Jewish. Most are happy to share it. They're happy to say it. They're not afraid to share it. So Judaism today, since the Rebbe became the leader of Chabad 70 years ago, since the previous Rebbe arrived in the United States more than 80 years ago, Judaism today has been totally transformed. While 80 years ago, it appeared that Judaism in the United States was heading towards its demise, towards its end. Assimilation was happening extremely quickly. Jews were dropping Jewish practice and adopt, adapting Christian ones. Jews were turning away from Judaism. Chabad today is found in every single major city in the United States, in all 50 states. Chabad is found in more than 100 countries around the world. Wherever you go today, there is Chabad. We're found everywhere. But not only is there a Chabad center, but each Chabad center is a community with hundreds, if not thousands of people involved in those centers. It's actively participating in classes, in prayer services, in other programming, in Jewish education, Hebrew school, in preschools, in elementary schools, um, in clubs, in, and all sorts of other programming across, on campuses across the United States. Jews today are more involved in Jewish life than ever before. More Jews today are actively involved in Judaism than they were back then, 80 years ago. And although there is still, unfortunately, a segment of the Jewish community that is not as involved, that is assimilating, but Jewish involvement is becoming more and more common. In fact, in the last decade or two, we're seeing that surveys that Jewish communities are um, doing of their Jewish community are finding that while for the past century, younger people tended to be less and less and less involved in Judaism. Now, for the first time, younger Jews are more involved in Jewish life than older Jews. And now, younger Jews are more and more involved in Jewish life, and more and more actively Jewish. And while the membership model of paying membership in synagogues has fallen apart, and most young Jews are not paying membership, those Jews are active in Jewish life. 
as many as 50% of Jews here in the United States are in one way or another active in Chabad in their local Jewish community. And so now Chabad communities are found everywhere. Jews are involved in Judaism just about everywhere. Jewish services like synagogues, shuls can be found everywhere. Jewish education can be found in almost every Jewish community. There are mikvahs everywhere. There's kosher food almost wherever you go. And the landscape of Jewish life in the United States has totally changed. And the same is true for Jewish life everywhere around the world, in Canada, in Central America, South America, in Africa, South Africa, in Central Africa, where there are budding Jewish communities, in Europe, in the former Soviet Union, in Russia, in Ukraine, where in Israel, of course, which itself had a time where it was more secular than Jewish. And um, really, wherever you go around the world, there are large, thriving Jewish communities, and Jews are coming back and getting more involved in Judaism as the Chabad influence continues to grow. Now, our work is not done yet. There are, there's a lot more work that still needs to be done. There's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, there are still millions of Jews that are not yet involved in Judaism, or Jews whose involvement is still minimal. Well, I know here on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we usually get a thousand people come through here, and then we don't see them much of the year. So there's a lot more work to be done, and we are working on that. When Rabbi Yossi likes to say, when he first came here 25 years ago, there was nothing here in the beach cities. Um, there was very, very handful of synagogues, small synagogues, uh, but very, very little by way of Judaism or Jewish life here in the South Bay, or in, particularly in, in the beach cities in this area. There was very, very little here. Um, there was, people actually told him he should go back to the West Side. People thought he got lost here. He didn't realize that the Jewish community is supposed to be on the West Side. And um, with time, this community has built from a very, very small shul. Some of you remember before I came back on Aviation um, Boulevard and um, it's grown. We bought the building on Vail Avenue um, and we've since grown, we're now working on building another, a second building um, and building a, the, a preschool and now building an elementary school. And this community has really, really grown um, in the last 25 years. And today there are thousands of families that are actively involved in Judaism in our community through Chabad here in just in this community. Uh, but there's still a lot more work to be done. There are still thousands that are not involved in Judaism. I'm always surprised when I meet people, and this happens to me, I would say almost daily, I meet people who have never been to our community center before, and sometimes people have never even heard of us before. All the time. And I'm surprised. I think everybody knows us. We've, I would like to think we've touched everyone, but there are so many that we haven't touched that need to be touched, that we need to touch, we need to reach out to. And there are those who we have touched, but haven't touched enough. We can do so much more. And so our work is still cut out for us. Chabad has changed, the Rebbe had changed, has changed Judaism by bringing and revived Judaism in the United States and around the world. 
through send, building Chabad and sending out Chabad couples. But there is a lot more work to do. And really all of us, not just the Chabad leadership in the community, but everybody has a role to play. Everybody knows people. Everybody has friends, um, neighbors, and others. I keep discovering I have another Jewish neighbor. I just moved a year ago, so I don't yet know all my neighbors well. But I keep meeting new people. Someone lives a block from me, two blocks from me, who are Jewish. Um, and uh, there are so many people whom we can get involved in the Jewish community to continue to build Judaism in our community and in the community around us. So I hope you take this as a message for ourselves. We need to continue growing. We have a lot more work to do. You, you all who are here and joining and listening, listening in on this, you are all part of this. And uh, you have work to do as well. Reach out to anyone you know or anyone you can know. You'll be surprised who you know that's Jewish. They often don't even tell you. Ask. doesn't hurt to ask. Nothing will ever happen if you ask a friend or an acquaintance, excuse me, are you Jewish? Nobody will get upset at you. Sometimes they do, but if they do, it's too bad. And uh, it never hurts. Invite them. Come to a class. It's virtual now. You can come to a Torah class. Come to, come to prayers. Come to our, one of the programs. We're going to be doing some great programs over Hanukkah. Get involved and uh, definitely reach out to your friends. Um, I'd love to meet them if you know anyone and uh, really to continue growing Jewish life here in the South Bay and with that around the world. And uh, the goal, of course, is to change our world, bring Torah to the entire world so that we hasten the coming of Moshiach who will come and bring us all back to the promised land um, that will happen hopefully today, but very, very soon.